The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign. If it's your child's first time in Children's Church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Thank you, Katie, and good morning. My name is Ben. If this is your first time at Restoration, we are glad that you're here this morning. You can be anywhere, and you're here. Um, Oftentimes... uh, Sometimes people who are preaching say, oh, I love this passage. I can't wait to preach it. I hit the gold mine. What a lucky week. That's not me. Um, I didn't, don't, didn't love this passage when I first read it, and it's uh, one that's hard to get your arms around. And once you do, it asks a great deal of you. It's, it's rather searching. And so I um, just wanted to say that from the get-go. Uh, but I do want to begin by turning our... Um, minds to a 2007 movie called There Will Be Blood. There Will Be Blood is uh, a story of Daniel Plainview played by Daniel Day-Lewis. And Daniel Plainview is an oil tycoon. He begins the movie as a bluest of blue-collar worker digging a well, trying to find oil. He ends the movie as being one of the wealthiest oil tycoons in the world. Now, In between, we see how he accomplishes such a feat. But in it all, he says something that marks every single thing he does. In the movie, he says this. He says, I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. Competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. The ethic of Daniel Plainview and there will be blood, is the ethic of the Pharisees at the beginning of Mark 7. They have a competition. They want no one else to succeed. They hate most people. Jesus is gaining ground and gaining momentum and gaining fandom 
People are coming to him from all over. And the Pharisees have come to Jesus to stop that. And we see they're trying to set Jesus in a trap and what actually happens is it backfires on them. What happens is it backfires on them. And so this morning we'll look at three points as we see uh, what Mark 7 has for us. First, the masks of our hypocrisy. Second, the beauty of our shortcomings. And third, uh, the renovation of the heart. So with that in mind, let's go to God and ask him to bless the study of his word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, there is a, a hypocrite this morning speaking on a story of hypocrisy. Would you teach us and teach myself what it looks like more and more to have a trust that is so bold that it tears apart the false narratives we lean into and live out of so that we see you and the freedom you give us as more beautiful and believable this very day. We all come with different stories, Lord, and so would you disturb the comfortable? And would you comfort the disturbed? As we all long to see you, Jesus, at work in our lives and be changed by it. We pray in your name, Christ. Amen. So first we see the masks of our hypocrisy. Uh, Mark is a particular writer of a gospel, hint, the gospel of Mark, and uh, he's someone who has action-packed drama. He writes and has um, these different stories that are back-to-back, and he often says immediately, 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 because he just packs everything in there. It's, it's a moving gospel. Another thing that marks him, that, uh, that, that marks Mark, is that uh, he explains the world of the text. So he explains what um, may pass by our eyes and our ears, and he explains what's really going on in the world of uh, first century. And so uh, I'm grateful for that. And we see that in the first couple of verses. In verse one, starting and going on to verse five, it says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? The Pharisees have come. They want to catch Jesus in a trap. They want to catch him in a way that he's doing something wrong. And they see the followers of Jesus eating with unclean hands, with, with, with unwashed hands. And this violates a law, a tradition of theirs that they have passed down from the elders. Now, they break a ceremonial law by not washing their hands, and therefore they break a moral law. The Pharisees are saying to Jesus, you and your followers are not just unclean, but they're, they're immoral. You are, you're void of immorality. And so, 
That happens because in the Old Testament, God gave the people a law. They gave the people a law so that they could be marked and known and shaped and formed into a people of God who are distinct from other groups of people. A people who say, uh, we have a God who's not just a higher power, but a higher, more beautiful calling, who's at work in our lives. He's holy and we aren't. And the law exposes our unholiness and our uncleanliness. It exposes them to trust in the God they're following. And one of those laws that was given was for the priest. The priest uh, gives sacrifice in the temple, in the tabernacle. And you want your priest to be squeaky clean so that he didn't go in there and die when he gave sacrifices. So the priest would clean themselves up and have all these laws and traditions uh, to clean themselves as they go and give sacrifices. And the Pharisees saw that one law for the priest and said, let's do it for the whole people. All the people will take this one specific law and one specific tradition and everyone will be clean. Everyone will try to wash themselves and clean themselves up. Everyone will do it. And then generation after generation, that tradition gets passed down on and on and on. And all of a sudden we're here with Jesus. And the Pharisees look at Jesus and say, you're not playing by our rules. We have these traditions passed down from our elders and you aren't playing by our rules. We've gone overboard. We've applied it to everyone in life and therefore you are unclean and therefore you are immoral. And Jesus responds to them and doesn't play by their artificial inflated laws in his response. By the way, the laws which he gave them in the first place. He responds to them with scripture. And he responds to them and he says in verse 6, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of of men. Jesus quotes Isaiah as he looks to the Pharisees and says, you're hypocrites. Now, it's a pretty brash thing to say. It's pretty um, confronting. But what's important here is context. In first century, hypocrites weren't just a phrase that we shoot at people when they're being disingenuous. A hypocrite was someone who was in theater. And in that day, um, people in theater, actors, would not put on makeup or costumes. Actors would put on masks. Now, time out. Not in 95s, not cloth masks. We can't read our norms into the text. Okay. Actors would wear masks to cover their identity and project and try to be someone else and play a role. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, you are so disingenuous in the way that you put a mask on to cover yourself and project some false reality to everyone else. What everyone else sees is not true to the inward reality of your life. There's a disingenuous dissonance to your life, Pharisees. I'm going to call it out. And it's a good thing that Jesus calls out hypocrisy because as his kingdom grows, he can't allow hypocrisy to grow with it. He's being earnest and he's unturning the false narratives that the Pharisees believe. And he's saying a false exterior presentation distracts 
from the inward reality. And because of that, there's a superiority in the Pharisees. Now, like any movie, like any story, any TV show, book, whatever it is, you can know who the bad guy is. You can, you, you can tell who is painted as the enemy, the villain. The Pharisees are that in this story. And yet there's something real and visceral in them that we can look at our own lives and see. The masks, the masquerade, the hypocrisy that's in their life is not untouched in ours. There's a 21st century character in pop culture uh, named John Wayne Gacy Jr. And he's someone who had a life marked with atrocities. And one of which is that he was a serial killer. And he killed 33 people. And 26 of them he buried underneath his house in the basement. All of his neighbors knew him to be someone who was fun and funny and cheerful and joking and jeering. A good neighbor. And yet, underneath the floorboards of his house, said a whole entire different story. Sufjan Stevens writes a song about John Wayne Gacy Jr., and he says this. He says, And in my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Just like John Wayne Gacy. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I've hid. Humanity is reactive in the way that we are hiding creatures. When confronted with the the shortcomings and the shame and the sin of our life, we hide, we cover, we mask, we masquerade. We are a people who want to show others something so different than what's really going on inside. From the first page of the Bible, we see it. When Adam and Eve are confronted with the fact that they are now in a a state of sin and misery, what do they do? They run. They cover themselves. They hide in shame. Since then, humanity has been a people who cover and hide and masks themselves up. Look underneath the floorboards of our lives and you will see exactly who we are the things that we try to cover up and let no one else see and have a false exterior of a mask and a masquerade. And the hard reality is that this doesn't happen in a vacuum, but it has ramifications for those around us. Just like Adam and Eve, they ran, they hid, they covered themselves up in shame. Uh, Then their relationship to one another and everything else changed. Aaron Huffman, um, who is teaching children's church. If you want to go hear another version of the story, feel free to get up and walk out. I don't blame you. Um, But she sent me this quote this week and said, I think this is really the heart of the passage. And it's a quote by Henry Nouwen. And I know it's hard to be read to, but it says this. As long as we continue to live as if we are what we do, what we have, and what other people think about us, we will be filled with judgments, opinions, evaluations, and condemnations. We will remain addicted to the need to put people and things in their right place. To the degree that we can embrace the truth that our identity is not rooted in our success, our power, or popularity, but in God's infinite love, to that degree can we let go of our need to judge. Because we are so keen on covering ourselves up, we at the same time have a ramification, an implication of judging other people 
because of a mask we put on, putting them in their right place, not like going the fact that we can judge others. The masks of hypocrisy and the Pharisees wanted to cover up their own sin and shame and have a, a mask of the law being kept, of cleanliness, even despite their uncleanness inside. And yet you and I also wear masks. And so my question for you this morning is, what does the mask in your life look like? What mask do you put on as a masquerade, a false exterior to hide truly what's going on inside? It could be a mask of competence that you know how life should be lived and you know the way to live it and everyone else should live by that way and everyone who doesn't is a fool. And God's put you in their life to let, you, let them know that they're messing up. It could be a mask of apathy and indifference where we see other people's joy and we usurp the meaning and the beauty out of things to make sure they're not having any fun that we're indifferent towards them and apathetic so that no one else can have joy because we're not having joy. It could be a mask of status where we have a buffer of friends and acquaintances so we just won't feel so alone. It could be a mask of quietness so that no one else can get near us to know who we really are, how we really feel. If you're like me, it could be a mask of sufficiency. In Eogram 2, it's what I am, I just want to be told that I'm okay. I meet the standard. That you accept me. And therefore, just, I'll just want to be sufficient. I just want to meet your needs. What is the mask in which you put on to make sure that your interior life is not known, but the exterior is the bar that's set? That you so long to be accepted. So yes, there's a mask and a masquerade we put on, but, but also there's, there's the beauty of our shortcomings. Jesus tells them, yes, Pharisees, you put masks on, you're hypocrites, but he gives them a case study, which is nice. He kind of um, makes an illustration, and he tells them a story. And here's this case study, he says, starting in verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the command of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father... And mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Jesus is telling them, you are being so creative in the way that you're dealing with your sin. Again, Mark tells us kind of what the world behind the text means. And so he talks about Corbin. And Corbin was this idea that you set something apart for holy use to give it to God. That you set something normal apart and you give it to God. Make sense? And he's saying, well, Pharisees, you're so twisted to the point that someone in this story sets something apart for holy use to give to God. And all of a sudden their parents are in need. And there's this fourth com or fifth commandment that says, honor your father and mother. And Pharisees, you're so backwards right now that they're so rigid that you have to give something to God and vo leave void the fact that you have to honor your father and mother. That you're giving God something to help your account with him 
and completely neglecting your responsibility of honoring your father and your mother, even while you have something that can meet their need. Jesus is telling them, you have set up a system of self-love as you give sacrifices to help your own account, to deal with your shortcomings. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you are so keen on fixing your shortcomings because you have made your view of sin so small. The Pharisees were known to be holy and do all these different things and they, they, met, they met what was required of them, the standard. They kept everything the best way they could. And Jesus is telling them, you have made your view of sin so small, you've set up a system of hoops that you can jump through yourself. You're seeing you're so backwards. You're seeing your shortcomings as a way that you can deal with it that you're the main actors of redemption in your life, that you think you can deal with your own sin because you can deal with the law. And he's telling them so backwards. They see, the Pharisees see their sin as a manageable liability. There's a book that Flannery O'Connor, she's a writer who's fabulous, uh, wrote in the 50s. It's her first book. It's called Wise Blood. And in this book, Wise Blood, there's a character, and the main character named Hazel Motes. And Hazel Motes is uh, this character that the story speaks to about his wrestling with faith and his spiritual journey, and he deals with um, the realities of heart, the rigor of life, and atheism, and how to figure out what life is really about, what the Christian faith is really about. And early on in the book, uh, Flannery O'Connor writes and says how Hazel Motes, listening to his grandfather preach, the grandfather is a fiery preacher and tells all about God. Flannery O'Connor notes that, that Hazel Motes listens to him preach and hears nothing because of the fact that the way he views God drowns everything else out. And Hazel Motes is noted by, by Flannery O'Connor to feel this. It said, the boy didn't hear it, didn't need to hear it, the sermon there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. O'Connor is saying, for Hazel Motes, here's the solution. You don't have to deal with Jesus as long as you're not marked with sin. And the Pharisees are saying a very similar thing. Hey, if we clean ourselves up and meet the requirement that's asked of us, we'll be okay. We'll be cleaned up. We'll be, we'll be good enough. Hazel Motes is terrified of God, and because of that, he'll avoid sin at all costs to avoid Jesus. The Pharisees will avoid Jesus because of the fact they've accomplished so much. Satan's game and how we deal with our shortcomings and how we deal with our sin is telling us to deal with it on our own terms. Adam and Eve, they run from God and they hide in their sin and shame and they try to deal with it by covering themselves. Hazel Motes tries to deal with sin in a way that avoids God and avoids his shortcomings. The Pharisees try to give money, Corbin, to God to manage their account, to justify themselves. 
We all have ways in which we try to manage and pay for and avoid the sin and the shortcomings in our lives so we don't have to face the music. We try to be good enough and clean ourselves up. And yet the beauty of our shortcomings is the fact that it qualifies you for redemption. There is no other religion, and I use religion for lack of a better word, there's no other religion that uses your sin and your shortcomings and your shame with such redemptive purposes like Christianity. The Pharisees would say to Jesus, this guy dines with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus says, yeah, I do. That's exactly who I came for. The beauty of our shortcomings is that that's exactly why Jesus has come and what exactly he's come to address. Do you feel downtrodden? Do you feel tired? Do you feel like you're a failure? You're in the perfect place. It's exactly where the king of all things comes to you and says, I'm coming for you. And so this very day, I want to ask you the question of how do you deal with your shortcomings? Do you try to avoid your sin so that then you don't have to deal with Jesus? Do you try to live up to some standard of accomplishing like the Pharisees, so then you're okay, you're clean, you're scot-free, you've met the standard at the bar? Or does your sin take you somewhere else to admitting, I don't have it together? Each week we confess sin because we should be a people who come into this room who are so tired of trying to hold the house of cards together. You can rest easy here. You don't have to justify yourself. Because the God of all things says, you don't have to hold it all together to avoid sin, manage it, or pay for it. I've done all that for you. That's the beauty of our shortcomings. That's the beauty of our sin. And it takes us exactly to the last point this morning, and it's the renovation of the heart. It'd be nice for... um, the disciples to hear Jesus telling the Pharisees, you're hypocrites, the law, you're not meeting, uh, you're having a two-faced kind of thing. It'd be nice for the disciples to say, hey, Jesus, can you just lower the bar a little bit so we can meet it and be enough? Or maybe Jesus, take this law thing and just chuck it out so then we'll be free of it. And Jesus says to them, essentially, I'm not going to throw it out I'm going to fulfill it. I've come not to destroy it, not to do away with it. I've come to fulfill the law, to be the very thing those people couldn't be for themselves. God has come not to fix the symptoms of sin, but he's come to fix the source of it, which is our hearts, our operating systems. He doesn't ask us to have uh, behavior modification He asks us to be invited into our lives and have him do much with the brokenness of our lives. In the Old Testament, there's a paramount passage that talks about the coming of Christ. And it's in the book of Ezekiel. And the book of Ezekiel happens in Old Testament history at just about the worst of times. The people of Israel have gone and they're captive uh, to an enemy And Ezekiel comes and tells them the hard truths of the situation that they're in. And then he tells them in in chapter 36 exactly what redemption will look like. And Ezekiel 36 tells us how God will deal with 
our shortcomings, the mess of our lives, the way in which we can't live up to the standard. Here's the solution that Ezekiel tells God's people who are in the darkest of dark places. Here's the solution. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and will, you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You'll be my people and I will be your God. There's about six or seven I wills because God is the main actor of renewal in our lives. God will do it. God will do it. God will do it. And it says, after he does all this, then he'll allow us and we'll be able to walk upright in his laws. And then we'll be able to enjoy the things that he's promised us. God is the main actor in which we experience renewal and redemption. And the work in which that looks like is this, an authentic heart. Jesus was getting on the Pharisees for having a disingenuous life, a mask where the exterior and the interior had dissonance. They weren't the same, but a mask covered up the internal realities. And Jesus says to the people, I will give you a new heart where in which you can have an authentic heart where you can wear on the sleeve and show others really what's going on inside of you where you don't have to cover things up anymore. Because when you show people an authentic heart that what's really going on inside of you, you show them, I am this broken and my savior came to address that very brokenness. He's come to bring a renovation of the heart so you can live authentically. The mission of Restoration Southside is to restore people places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. We didn't choose the word authenticity because it sounds good or it's cheeky. It's a calculated word because it's not something that we um, should have excursions to find meaning in life, nor in which uh, where we have our own effort to find life. But we live authentically because we know we're not enough. We know we fail. We know we'd never be enough. And Jesus says, you are free for that. You don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to live to any standard. You're free. You're free. An authentic heart doesn't follow itself. An authentic heart is free from trying to justify itself. It allows you to exhale and have the king of all things come to you and grab your hand and take your mask off and say, I know what's inside of you and it's not too much for me. And, and he comes to you and says, you can stop trying to justify yourself and paying for your own sins or avoiding the law because your story is not too much for me. I've come to set you free from having to justify yourself. Come to me. Let's pray.
Lord, I'm a person who so longs to hear from the words of others, the words that you've already spoken to me. That I've gone to other places to find life and meaning, to put a mask on, to, to hide the inner realities and cover myself in, in my sin and my shame. And yet you're a God who says, take your mask off. Your shortcomings aren't too much. But this day, you remind us the fact that we are most free and most loved when we are most known by you. May that free us to embrace the fact that Christ came for sinners. And because of that, we can revel in the fact that we are so far from perfect, but we are the ideal candidates of grace. Minister grace to us this very moment, we pray. Amen. Embrace the fact that Christ came for sinners. And because of that, we can revel in the fact that we are so far from perfect, but we are the ideal candidates of grace. Minister grace to us this very moment, we pray. Amen.